When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Strong, interesting. I mean, he's he's a lib, of course, but it's it's still strong work. And <laughs> what do you have against the libs, Curtis here? Uh, I, you know, some of my best friends are libs. I was I, I was I grew up as a lib. I'm you know, the libs are my people. What could I possibly have against the libs? What are you even talking about? Mm. I love the libs. Mm. Are we recording yet? Are we live? Are we live? Uh, or are we... We're not live, but I, I was just going to cut in because we're rapping already. Sure. But did you want to talk sure. before we talk? No, 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 no. It's okay. fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. We can be live. Uh, because uh, the podcast we did earlier this year was my number one podcast. So thank you very much for showing up on my channel. Awesome. Did great awesome. numbers for me. Awesome. 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 And cool. I've been uh, I've been listening to, uh, there's a YouTuber, Skeptical Waves, who's stockpiling a, a bunch of uh, kind of dissident opinions through uh, Amazon mm -hmm. voice technology. He's got oh. probably about 50 mm -hmm. to 75% of unqualified reservations. Um in uh, audio format now. So I've been listening cool, to uh, cool, 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 cool. Dawkins got pwned on repeat and the letter to mm -hmm. uh, uh, the open-minded progressives on yeah, repeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, yeah. it seems like at some point you started to think differently than you did before this point. So at some point you, you admit to being liberal or universalist. Um, to, yeah, I, don't, I, I, I mean, I grew up as basically a classic blue stater, right? So yeah. really, is, and then I was a Cold War diplom diplomat's kid, right? So I got that kind of, you know, Cold War diplomat perspective. But when and, did this weird uh, worm start to itch the back of your well, brain? Well, you know, that's a good, that's a good question. So, you know, I'd sort of taken a long sabbatical to do some some computer science research and i was also was kind of a late libertarian maybe at the time you know like glenn reynolds instapundit like the early early blogosphere you remember that period like you know he's just, he's still blogs he's you know he's the blog father he's the you know law professor at the university of tennessee or something like that generally you know a, a good guy and that that was sort of the kind of like sound of moderate sort of early, almost like early so is this live and let live like tread on me kind well. of stuff no that's it's that's much lower brow this is this is like highbrow intellectual conservatism you know these are like law professors right these are you know air eugene volock maybe kind of like the reason crowd you know and so you have this kind of light you know libertarianism era stuff and sort of two things changed while i was an unemployed computer science researcher you know or independent researcher or just like a crank or a weirdo which you know is really the way many still see me of course and and the and so i'm like looking into this stuff and i'm doing my like computer science stuff but i'm also getting into like the harder stuff like you know like like more you know once you're into like libertarianism it's like there's sort of a gateway drug kind of effect where it's like you read hayek 
and then you don't realize that you think of like Hayek as like the hard stuff. And then it's like, no, actually Mises is the hard stuff, right? You know, like Hayek was a student of Mises. Like, you know, Hayek is like an inferior, like pop Mises. Like, he's fine. He's great. He's Hayek, right? You know, but it's like Mises who's the real fucking stud here, right? You know, and so you're sort of getting deeper into this very, very heavy, you know, you know, early 20th century, like, you know, post Habsburg kind of shit. I mean, Mises, for example, actually, not only is he the amazing theorist, he like ran the Austrian economy. He was like the Alan Greenspan of like Austria for like two years. And he like solved the like German inflation. Like this guy was a badass. You know, he he like washes up in New York after the second war, like, you know, and manages to find some people to like take care of him and even give him like a professorship. But he's like never part of anything. And then, you know, beyond Mises, you have of course the great rothbard who basically founded modern libertarianism most libertarians haven't really read much rothbard and beyond rothbard you have the, the infamous hhh hans hermann hoppe who runs the property and freedom society if you're really cool you can be invited to his his yearly seminars in bodrum turkey and he used to be uh, an economics professor at unlv for a while so he ran this like weird extension of like the austrian school of economics uh, of UNLV of all places, kind of, I think, you know, a place I kind of think of more in like basketball like terms, mm. right? Um, but, you know, and, and sort of, you know, this is what it means to sort of get into the hot, the harder stuff. And what is hardening know, about it? Like, what's, what's the, what general... is hardening about it? Yeah. So, the excellent question. So, what's hardening about it is that you sort of generally sort of broaden your critiques. And so, you know, the thing is that, Austri the Austrian school of economics kind of borders on the political in a sense is that it and sort of it implies this very kind of, um, you know, what Austrians basically believe in is free markets in finance, as opposed to kind of what we have, which are these like weird hybrid systems where the government sets interest rates and they like if you were to sum up market you know austrian economics you know in, in like one term it's like basically all financial signals should be done by the market including interest rates across the yield curve and like that sounds like a really simple obvious thing but it's just like impossible to get there from here and you know who would be setting interest and, rates just individual banks the market? No, the market. You would have a basically a supply, the supply of money that, let's say, do you know what a yield curve is? Mm, it's the basically, it, it's the um, interest rates as a function of time. So basically, you have normally you have a yield curve that points upward and to the right because it basically lending money for 30 years, meaning I'm not going to use this money for 30 years, is going to be basically more expensive than lending it. Like, you know, even the, the thing is, there are more ways to use a longer term of production because what you're really doing when you're lending for 30 years is you're saying do something with this money that will take 30 years to pan out do something with this money, like invent like fusion reactors or something like, you know, that's sort of the way that a system like this, or, or just say, Hey, you know, I'm going to retire in 30 years. I don't need this money till then. Right. And, and, you know, that sort of peer to peer lending model, you know, which is sort of naturally then you're just like, you know, Literally, the interest rate is set by the supply and demand of borrowers versus lenders at every term. 
Does that make sense? So, and so instead, every we, individual borrowing action has a, its own interest rate. Has a corresponding lending action, and so you're you're making, of course, you're 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 making these things fungible. Uh, you know, you're saying my thirty year loan is just like your thirty year loan. You're making these things fungible in the market, but you're still setting interest rates by supply and demand. Hmm. A good example of this is to say, let's say, suppose an asteroid is projected to hit the Earth and destroy it in the year twenty thirty. Okay, suppose that I wanted to borrow money now and pay it back in 2031. There should be essentially no market for this transaction, which means that there should be no interest rate at, at that term basically i should i would have to pay back infinite dollars in 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 2031 and right and so the thing is if the yield curve in that situation is set by the market you'll see this like huge spike in it because nobody wants to basically lend money and get paid get paid back in 2031 in fact what you have in the 20th century is this weird system where because of sort of historical things that went on in banking. Wow, we are going in a weird, deep direction here, but we'll get out of this. Uh, because of things that historically happened in banking, you got this system where the government tries to sort of have a like a, a, a gas pedal on the economy by fixing the price, which it can do as a currency issuer, fixing the price of short-term interest rates. And then this non-market signal has gradually turned into the present of like what we call quantitative easing. What that means is you're now going to fix prices across the yield curve. For, so, for, through as, interest rates. Through setting interest rates and through buying and selling, buying basically buying back bonds. So when the Fed buys bonds, it's driving the price of bonds up, right? You know, and, and so... Um, so in fact, if you can inf- issue infinite dollars to buy bonds, which the Fed can do, you can really peg these interest rates. But that is not a market signal. And thus, you basically have this system where macroeconomics depends on command economics in this really weird way, which everyone thinks is normal because that's the way we like normally do it. Right. And in fact, I would argue it's a very strange, um, it's sort of the result of formalizing very dodgy banking procedures that are not healthy at all for the economy. Very deep digression. In any case, you're basically trying. So, so, you know, understanding is sort of, and, and you won't really get this from Hayek. You'll get it from like Mises. And so, you know, here's this sort of very deep existential critique about the way the world works, which is very, very interesting. And sort of, you're just like, wow, you know, there's this area totally outside the Overton window, which is like here, this is like normal economic views. And then there's this like other porthole that's like way the heck over there. And so, you know, what hardening means is sort of strengthening your ability to kind of jump outside the Overton window and be like, no. It's not just that actually you come to see the Overton window more as a bubble and it's like actually, you know, the cult of Overton, basically. And Mm. everything outside the bubble is sort of very small in your picture because that's the bad outworld. And everything inside the bubble is sort of inworld. And this is a bubble in time. Anybody who was born before, you know, 1920 has perspectives that are outside the Overton window. So you've actually excluded basically all of history from your little bubble, which is exactly the sort of thing that a cult does. And well, but and it's a really, it's like really, the, really big cult. So it 
It's a really, really big cult. Sure. But the thing is, you know, like, you know, cults can scale. So in any case, you're basically you start to get this strange feeling that you're living in a cult, even when you basically read the Austrian critique of the way modern economies are planned, because that critique critique is an existential critique. It's basically, no, the whole idea of what it is to manage an economy here is just completely wrong. And that's why we have just like insane things like the business cycle. Right. And and just like what? Right. And and and, you know, obviously, the system is working as well as could possibly work. Right. Just from the results. Totally. No, nothing. Totally. Right. Totally. Nothing could possibly be wrong with this thing. (laughs) Nothing bad is happening. Nothing is fucked. Right. You know, and so. You're just like, no, it's sort of possible for things to be fucked in such a way that the distance from where we are to something unfucked is unimaginable. It's not just something that would be politically very difficult. It's just it's just existentially unimaginable within the existing political frame. And so you're basically you're starting to imagine that you know, less that you're on an island above a sea of chaos and more that you're in a bubble or a sea of evil, really. Like every cult wants to see itself as an island on a sea of evil and everything outside of it, the past, you know, 10,000 years, evil, 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 everywhere is evil except us. We, the people, we are not evil. This is a very human pattern. And so to find the present world, you know, which has become the single integrated culture to find that the single integrated culture is involved in this very normal human pattern is a very normal thing. It's like when you hear hoofbeats expect horses, this is a horse. A zebra would be like if the, like this was the cult that had found like the meaning of life and time and everything. But like generally, the more, you know, enlightened, genuinely enlightened periods tend to have more respect for other periods. And so this lack of respect for the world outside it is like a huge like everyone but us sucks is like a huge cult signal yeah. right and so you're, you're starting to be like you know, i'm living in a cult and the thing that that hoppa does <clears throat> which is sort of really cool is that he basically takes many of the unexamined sort of motivations and and like understandings of economics and extends them in this book democracy the god that failed into the political realm and in particular he sort of presents the old sort of theory of the law of nations and how governments worked before the democratic revolution in a way that you can actually parse if you've already been smoking that hard shit Okay. of like hard Austrian economics, like Mises and so forth. So, for example, one of the things that Hoppus points out is that what you really want in a regime is for that regime's own interests to be as aligned as possible with the interests of the nation itself. You want, you know, what previous regimes call the solace populi supreme elects, the health of the people is the supreme law, in the sort of like... You can't say a regime is a good regime if its people deteriorates or if its land deteriorates, like basically, you know, preservation of capital. You start thinking about nations in the same way that you think about firms. And, you know, as a libertarian, you're very, you know, 
you understand the enormous power of this like system of competing firms and you know that it breaks down when there's like a single firm like a monopoly you know that like monopolies kind of suck and are kind of more government like than sort of networks of competing firms and you're just like wait a second that's exactly what orson wells was talking about in the third man when he's like makes the famous comparison between medieval italy and medieval switzerland if you know that line where yeah. he's like, <clears throat> this is from um, The Third Man, which was, uh, I believe it was a Graham Greene novel, um, but it has Orson Welles as the villain, and he ad-libs all these lines, and he ad-libs this, um, this great line where he's like, you know, totally historical, by the way, where he's like, Switzerland had 500 years of peace, and what did they invent? The cuckoo clock. Medieval Italy was just wars, wars, and wars, and, you know, everything we have came from them. Something like that, right? You know, which is, you know, perfectly true. Switzerland had, had some, you know, had some things, but, Chocolate. but, 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 um, in any case, basically, these very productive periods, these very functional periods in history come out of these like city state periods with multiple, many competing players in a very dynamic market. <laughs> and that's exactly where you also see the healthiest work of capitalism being done. When capitalism degenerates into monopoly capitalism, it actually kind of sucks. And so once you start to see this pa this pattern of correlation between the state system and the corporate system and you understand what makes the corporate system so darned effective has also made states effective how you can also see a state a regime as essentially a corporation which owns sort of the land and the people of the nation and you can go from there to reading you're like, okay, if states are like corporations, then a traditional hereditary monarchy is kind of like a family-owned corporation. And so the thing about a family-owned corporation is that the time interests of the family can be actually measured in the centuries. The owners of this yeah. property can think about, hey, wow, this is the legacy that we want to leave our descendants in the next century. You know, a dictator who's going to, you know, a president for life can't do that. Right. And in fact, you know, one of the um, one of the ironies of our present situation is what is the most <clears throat> when you when you include both government agencies and private corporations and all other organized forms of structure yeah. what is the most prestigious organization in the world i know the answer but maybe it's changed it would be Tell whoever me. tells the story whoever directs the narrative Yes. And, and whoever um, trains. And that would be, in other words, in other words, in other words, the New York Times. And um, are you no huge quarrel with that? And, you know, suppose suppose you were Nazis. I, I know it's a stretch. Suppose you were a Nazi and you were trying to take over the world. Yeah. You got to infiltrate your personnel. You got to put a little chip in the in the brains of like 100 people. Which people would you which would make them Nazis, and then they would conspire with the other Nazis to like Nazify everything? Uh, I would I would think that a substantial percentage of the people you chipped that way would be at the Times. 
Well, but there's also Yale and Harvard. There's also the yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's some relevance but you would, there. You would go and to New York Times rather than I think that that's sort upstream. of more that's more changeable. That's more upstream in a sense. I think that if the Times, you know, let's say that the Times is the last American paper that still responds. Here's the irony: is that it's certainly arguably the Times. And what is the governance model of the Times? Well, they just had a walkout this weekend. So we'll uh, they're a fifth but... generation hereditary monarchy. Yeah. Well, but to what degree do the owners actually impact? I think that I think that the Salzburgers are the last. First of all, I think the current Salzburger puffer, pincher, poop, or whatever his name is. Uh, you know, they all have these nicknames, right? But he, <laughs> you know, he really is the fifth in line. Uh, I think the current Salzburger is, frankly, and I don't care who hears this, a weak king. I think that his level weak. of control over the times is weak compared to his ancestors. Someone like Bezos, who is the publisher of the Post. I think has zero influence over the news desk. But I wouldn't say that of the Salzburgers. I think Bezos doesn't own the post. He sponsors it. But the Salzburgers are the last great American dynasty. Moreover, think about the irony of this world in which the most prestigious organization in the world is a hereditary absolute monarchy. Have you like like no one has noticed that, right? You know, and and and, yeah. and so you actually like when you start to try to understand this form of government and this system under which sort of the world was traditionally governed for the whole rest of the world outside the bubble until like seven, the, the late 18th century, it's just like you're looking at the real world from inside the revolution. And the like the real world is actually not the world inside the bubble. That's a province of history, sort of real history is outside it. Then we sort of observe things like, gee, wow, um, everything we like use or make or do is actually created by one of these little capitalistic monarchies. Um, mm -hmm. You know, your computer was made by Apple, which is a monarchy. Um, it was actually made by Apple in China. So it was made by a monarchy in another monarchy. Um, uh, you know, you send a package by FedEx, you're using a monarchy. You send a package by U.S. Postal Service, you're not using a monarchy. You're using, you know, vote for who runs the U.S. Postal Service. Well, yeah, but, but It's not a democracy. In, so you're in using America, something else. In the, the modern mind, we make a distinction between government and business. We, we have a hard time mm -hmm. seeing that. Right. We, we say and, that. And that's, the government's sovereign, and it's a, it has to be run differently. Right. And, and the thing is, that's a creation. That's a very, like, understanding that as functional and that parallel as not relevant and, like, public versus private, that's a feature of the 20th century political narrative, which other centuries would have found often, often quite strange. And so you have basically sort of operating systems, which are like, I would say the difference in a sense, you know, at the most, like, these are like ways, first of all, like, these differences make even less sense, sort of public versus private, when, you know, if I'm, I'm really a recovering libertarian. And so if I go up to a libertarian, and I want to like, we should be nice libertarians. But if I want to mess with their heads, basically, one of the things that I'll do is that I will ask them what the two most successful engineering projects of all time were. 
and and I will try to get them to answer first the Manhattan Project and second the Apollo Project. And I will ask them to admit that these things were successes, and then I will point out politely that they were government projects. Now, that's a very interesting analogy More the more you look at it. Setting aside the Apollo Project, which was actually the Nazi space program, uh, as you probably know. <laughs> really, Nazis, Nazis put an American on the moon. And, and, mm-hmm. and the, like, uh, I mean, literally, it's the same. Yeah, I mean, and... So the same people, right? And but the governing structure so, of those two projects was not not the way government works today. And yeah. so, if we look at the Manhattan Project, which didn't involve any Nazis, and so it's much better to talk about. Uh, <laughs> if we look at the Manhattan Project, which was what we see, especially from a Silicon Valley point of view, is we see a giant startup. We see something that runs like a startup, right down to having a technical and non-technical two-in-a-box CEO structure. We see that it runs completely from the top down. It doesn't have, you know, and a lot of these companies, like you'll find like advanced technology labs or so forth, which kind of look work like academia, where they just like hire a bunch of people and have them do cool stuff that they want to do. There wasn't any of that in the Manhattan Project. There was no 20% time in the Manhattan Project. No. No. <laughs> is 20% no. time, is that, a, is that a thing? Like that a Google, yeah, okay. like that's a Google thing where you like do 20% of time on your own project. Yeah. But really, if you're if you're a first-class person, you know, researcher or anything, you know, in the modern world, you've been doing only things that you wanted to do since you were 16 years old. Yeah. The Manhattan Project took basically the best scientists of the 20th century and gave them jobs and told them what to do. That was insane. Moreover, it was a completely top-down military hierarchy. It ran like a monarchy, like a startup, it like an Elon Musk company. And it was basically like everyone has their orders and they have a bunch of resources that work for them. And their job is to basically get the things that the orders say done using the resources that they have. This is the way people who have operated in, in anything non-sclerotic in the private sector expect organization to work. People who have operated in the public sector hmm. have a very different expectation. They have an expectation that everything will work by process and that governance yeah. at every level, if you are hired for a government job, your, go- your job, and I grew up basically inside the deep state. So, you know, your job is a process and you perform functions that are specified by this process. You have a supervisor. What do you mean by process? Like there's a bunch of process like, yeah, like a, like your job involves not achieving an objective, but following a procedure. And if your job involves following a procedure, which is often, I mean, you know, private, even certainly Tesla needs, you know, process and procedure. But if, if, you know, imagine you're like, for example, a customs and border patrol officer. Like you have a set of things. Your job is not to keep have the objective of keeping illegal them illegal aliens out of the country. Your job is to like handle these encounters in a proper way according to the proper process. And in theory, everything that you do is scripted. And, and endless. It's an endless and, process. And, and, and right. And 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 you have a boss. And the purpose of your boss is your boss is essentially an exception handler. And as we say in the programming biz, and if your boss can't figure out, if you can't figure out what you should do in this situation, you call your boss 
If he can't figure out what to do, he calls his boss. And that's sort of the basic structure of operations within the public sector. It's almost like a, a bureaucracy is sort of more like a court than like an army in some ways, where in a court, obviously, everything functions according to like, you know, procedures, everything, right? And and even, you know, eventually have to make decisions and decisions are done in a very scripted and structured way. And ideally, they're done by multiple people rather than one person. And having any kind of personal authority is really anathema to any kind of bureaucratic or oligarchic system. And so, so that's moreover, kind of like the the meaning of uh, you salute the uniform, not the man kind of thing. Like everybody's a uh, suit. Like, yeah, everybody's everybody's a suit. Everybody has a role to play. And moreover, when it gets when you get to the decision making level of this hierarchy, what you see is the decisions are made or like by whoever's in the room and whoever's in the room depends on this very inchoate thing, which is prestige. And 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 prestige is a very like, you know, nothing says, you know, the, we just admitted that either, you know, the New York Times or the New York Times and Harvard and Yale were the most powerful institutions in the country. Neither of them is mentioned in the Constitution. So if you if your real power structures are not mentioned in this piece of paper, then the piece of paper is no longer even about the government. It's like as valid and relevant as like the Articles of Confederation. It's not actually a description of how power works within the regime. Yeah. And 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 that's a very sort of, you know, these kinds of realizations would sort of drag you completely out of the like frame of like debating like, you know, low taxes versus should we do something about global warming or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Right. You know, are are, you know, these sort of rip you out of the frame. And that's kind of what I mean by kind of a harder, harder edge to pol to, to like my understanding of political reality where you suddenly start to see oh wait actually you know the case for the revolution itself as a whole is basically that it won and not much else and the american revolution. so the whole revolutionary period of the western world even the and, uh in all the way back to the reformation all the way back to uh, sure there's no the, the thing is there were many good things that came out of these periods in various ways and every sort of historical period has its own genius but when we basically imagine it as a sort of gnostic progress toward a perfect future then you know we start having to ask questions like well what would our ancestors think of us would they think that we had progressed what would the city fathers of san francisco in 1922 think of san francisco in 2022 mm -hmm. take a moment to process that right and and so actually when you when you sort of dig into history well enough that you actually understand 1922 to know well enough what 1922 would think of 2022 you suddenly get this weird parallax and by the way you know i picked 1922 because uh that was the original like copyright cutoff date that was before then you can read every book ever published for free so you know where in the overton window is the entire english language corpus of pre-1922 books located google yeah, I know. But where relative to the Overton window is it? Oh, it's to the right or what we describe as the right. 
uh, or it's to the right is sort of inadequate. It like surrounds everything in a sphere that is much larger. The world outside the bubble is much bigger than the world inside the bubble. Yes. And yeah. and that's what makes the bubble sort of provincial in a way. And once you sort of get outside, you know, it's like when the first time people got into space and basically saw a picture of the whole earth from space. Yeah. It's a huge stoner moment, late 60s, right? And and like, you know, the ability to see the bubble from outside the bubble and to be like, wow, you know, I'm floating in space. I'm like a Habsburg stand. You know, I see the I see the whole bubble and it's just like tiny and ridiculous. And you're just was like, it I'm disorienting so to you or gleeful? Oh, it's enormously disoriented. It's enormously disorienting. It's enormously disorienting and uncomfortable. You're going through a rabbit hole that in some ways you can never return from. I mean, really, like, like if you're like watching this interview and 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 you're worried about going down, just don't. Just just don't. like you could just reach up to the keyboard and turn this off right now. Well, and you it, won't let go down the rabbit hole. And, well, and like, it seems to be knocking at the door, though. Uh, again, you're unqualified reservations under Mitch's Mulbug. You you were laying out things that I was trying to look for. You were giving explanations about why the woke thing and the hyper progressive thing yeah. was taking over. Now we have Elon Musk taking over um, Twitter and MSNBC just this morning uh, published something about how he's a dic- he's a dictator now. And he he's a dictator. He's he's a dictator. He's running everything. I know Elon Musk. I have never met or communicated with Elon Musk. Okay. Uh, Important for me to make that disclaimer. Um, Yeah, but but the the, the story of a central authority overtaking the marketplace of ideas and disturbing very much so the oligarchical structure, what you've called the cathedral, is it's. it, it's showing that the rabbit hole's right here. It, it, like this, yeah, there's yeah. there's it's something showing, going showing, on. There, it, it's definitely yeah. I mean, you know, there was um um, it, it's sort of very it's very interesting. Of course, people knew abstractly that certain you know essentially what was happening at Twitter is that Twitter had made a very very sensible business decision of outlawing their um, trust and safety which is a wonderful name um, um, their trust and safety committee to basically sort of the powers that be and the powers that be uh, sort of no longer in some ways have the gravitas to really pretend to the level of like Olympian independence that they once have. They actually seem to be like conniving in like a very obvious and sordid way. And so, but it's sort of like one of the things that these organs have benefited from is the deep instilled cultural respect of Americans for organs like the FBI. Mm-hmm. And so basically to both to an advanced progressive who realizes that the feared domestic, you know, Gestapo of J. Edgar Hoover, you know, uh, is now realized that that former Gestapo is now managed by people who are down with the program. And moreover, they can take advantage of many old traditional boomer Americans who like to think about the G-men and John Dillinger or something. Hmm. And so they're like, wow, actually, everybody is totally fine with the idea of the FBI telling Twitter what 
to censor through basically someone like James Baker, the ex-FBI, through, through basically oligarchical prestige networks. And what you see in, in the memos yeah. from, yeah, what you see, and, and that just seems like procedurally very proper to listen to the respectable authorities about what is and isn't or could be misinformation. I mean, what was ridiculous is that the whole like Twitter, like hacked materials policy, like very important for society that people not be able to leak hacked materials. That was something that itself was come up with due to the DNC emails hack. Mm -hmm. So that was, and it was obviously, nobody would have added that policy of like, the Trump organization no, has emails. No, it, was, it was an antibody right. and, specifically to preserve the cathedral or the yeah, and, and yes, and nobody, nobody even like, actually the theory that that was even a Russian uh, operation is completely, there's no public evidence for that. And 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 so you have this basically, you know, all of these procedures when you're inside them look like the perfectly normal, prestigious way to do things. And then when you're outside them, not outside the whole Overton window bubble, but outside the sort of, you know, kind either the old like G-Men bubble, you know, or outside the like you know, Hillary Clinton bubble, you're basically like, wow, you know, this seems a little bit like a third world country in which the intelligence agencies are like moderating uh, <laughs> the means of transporting opinion, right? You know, it's like, if I think about it, it's like, you know, I was talking to my dad, who was a diplomat about the Hunter Biden thing. And he was just like, look, you know, this is exactly the way it's done. Like, when you're basically in a situation where all you need to avoid any kind of liability for corruption is to basically just like toss a, you know, just a handkerchief over it and be like, no, that isn't an elephant under that handkerchief. What do you mean? Right. You know, like mm. that's a handkerchief. There could be something under the handkerchief. Right. As long as nobody is asking the questions in a way that will be effective, you're just like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll just send the money to your son. Yeah. Right. I mean, and and like and if somebody was actually investigating corruption, like the way, you know, the U.S. does when it investigates U.S. corporations for bribing foreign officials, you know, you can't evade prosecution for bribing foreign officials by putting their son on your board. You just can't like that is just not a, not a thing that is going to pass muster. That is not a thing that is going to like delude anyone for more than 15 seconds who is investigating that. That is not a defense. And so essentially what you have developed there, this oligarchy is getting so fat and so lazy that it basically starts acting like an African despot and just basically like lying and making up rules as it goes and along and doing yeah. shit and doing it in a, and just doing it in almost plain sight. And it becomes basically and from within it, that looks like the completely normal, sensible way to operate. Went from within it, you know, it still looks just like completely normal and not even normal and right, but like bold to do what they did. Hmm. And like stunning and, and brave. Not, stunning and brave. Stunning and brave. Right. So 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 from inside, from inside the, the inner party, like yeah. you're at stunning and brave. And then from from outside, it basically looks like, you know, corrupt despotism and, and is that and, the case and, that moral warp because the system has selected people who behave in that way or is there some sort of you know like it's they're, definitely they're huffing a it's gas or something it's definitely selected like a tracy flick class if you know the famous movie election it's an early alexander payne movie yeah uh, super super amazing movie with um 
Uh, Reese Witherspoon and uh, Matthew, Matthew Broderick. Broderick. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Amazing film. And, and really what you see is that all of these prestigious positions become position, uh, positions that require you even like technical professorships become positions that require two things. One of them is like outward orthodoxy mm-hmm. and the other is basically kind of Tracy flick network building skills. And um, you which, have to be much better than like, like you have to be like student government kids. Right. You know, okay. and so ingratiating constantly. Yeah, you have a kind of student government mindset there. You have, you know, I think what you see like in the Twitter executives is kind of a, if you put it in like high school terms, when you imagine like fascism, you're thinking like football team governance. And when you look at this, it's more like, you know, drama kid meets student government. And (laughs) does that ring true to you? Like you have a sense of like, you know, the, the, you know, drama society occupied America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's very little. I mean, they're going around stealing people's uh, women's purses and stuff you know they're really attractive <laughs> petty stuff. Uh, yeah i love yeah. <laughs> the Sam, the Sam, the sam brinton story yeah oh my god oh my god uh, like I the system I that can't. selects for this it just it seems like in previous um interviews and perspectives and and the writing that you've done you're like this is indefinite this 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 oligarchical right. thing can just go on forever but it seems like it's rapidly decaying or maybe it's not because nobody's there to check it. Like no, no, no. Nobody's going to take these Twitter files seriously that has ways, any sort of power. Yeah, in some ways, it's stronger than ever, right? You know, and and it's like actually the worst thing that was done was with the the Hunter Biden laptop files, and it sort of typifies the like larpy, idiotic Giuliani hair dye conservative. Those files, which should have that whole laptop should have been up on BitTorrent, you know, like approximately 20 minutes after it was discovered right and put it out there in the open put it out there and instead they're like you know they're in this like weird superman universe of journalism where they're like no we will get the the brash reporter to report the story that breaks it wide open (laughs) in the new york post maybe the washington times i'm sorry did i say mean no i'm at the new york post Uh, you know and 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 so they basically like these aren't these aren't institutions of the cathedral. They're not real. Like you can't just call, have a like font that makes you look like a newspaper and call yourself a newspaper. You know, that's like calling yourself a hell's angel. Right. You know, and, and no, you're not. So even though these people don't have actual prestige, they're, they're still coded in it. And, and the entire system, the polygon, whatever it is, it's just coded in prestige. So there's nothing outside of it yeah, that you can can't, intrude you can't, order upon no it. no how would anything gain sort of prestige they basically think of you know it's like like there's no way the new york post could become the new york times like first of all what makes the new york times the new york times is not only its prestige but its connections and the new york times basically you know, you know the business of the new york times at least in it's in the side that covers government is basically to steal information from the government and sell it yeah this uh, i don't know which essay but this yeah. is a very important point yeah, that you it's make a point, that... it's, a, it's a point it's a point that i make in my early works yeah and, and you're basically stealing through sources and leaks which are like officially not legal or not allowed but in fact are like winked at you know this is a you know a a large stratum of sort of tolerated illegality. And whenever you're looking for real power, look for tolerated illegality and you will find it. Hmm. And the like, 
you know, if 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 like the President Trump had like death squads that would go and kill his opponents and not a word was said about it, yeah. that would be tolerated illegality. Yeah. Right. And and the I don't think anything of that like that is going on. But I definitely know that if you open The New York Times, you will see um stories based on non-public information basically across the front page at all times <laughs> I, you know in fact you know one cute reform that i once proposed was to apply there's a financial market thing called regulation full disclosure it's very you know where it says hey if you're a corporate management you can't like slip little hints to analysts you got to tell all material non-public information at the same time <laughs> to everyone if you did that, the press, as we know, it could no longer exist because it attains its prestige. Its prestige comes from its power and its power generates its prestige. And this works by basically its power is sticky because it generates networks of sources who are basically stealing information and selling it, who are therefore sticky. And so, in fact, you know, it's like it's a watchdog who no one is watching. And the watchdog has grown very old and fat. Who reports on the press? Who like, you know, yeah. uh, the New York Times bitches about the press. But like, essentially, you know, this organization is so far above any power on Earth. It's not even funny. And the like, so is, is Elon and, an actual threat? Is the acquisition of Twitter an actual threat in your mind? Um, or are they just acting like it? I think usually they're just acting like it. Uh, I think in this case, uh, I would say I probably hope that it's an actual threat, but, you know, I wouldn't want to be too hopeful. I think it would be very easy to be too hopeful. And 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 I think that it's very... So worst case scenario like, is nothing happens, but best or moderately good scenario, what would those look like? Like a challenge to this? Uh, uh okay like makers. a best case a best case scenario is that twitter becomes basically the center of a new prestige network okay and so it establishes it creates an objectively higher quality not just of aggregate unfiltered information but of filtered information which perhaps it itself takes the responsibility of filtering and it says by whatever means necessary both by crowdsourcing and by curating and i think that both of those things are absolutely essential in any kind of truth machine okay if twitter can establish that it can use its vast sort of army of like disordered opinion yeah. and content yeah. to actually forge a reliable source, which is actually more reliable than the reliable sources we have. Yeah. So for example, if you go to Wikipedia, you will find <laughs> say, where does the information from Wikipedia come from, Ben? And the answer will be that it comes from reliable sources. And if you go to their page, which defines a reliable source, you'll find something very interesting and unusual, but in a way, non-surprising, which is what is a reliable source, Ben? What you might, you might well ask, what you will find is that a reliable source is a source, which is reliable. <laughs> and that's, 
<laughs> and that's basically as far as you get, right? You know, and yeah. and and so you have this very neat thing where you're just like you're tracing the stream of power to its source because anyone who could say what was true or not true, who could control, for example, Wikipedia, would be a very powerful person. Suppose they were Nazis, and and the thing is, even yeah. if under the present Wikipedia policy, even if Wikipedia is controlled by liberal nerds, very liberal, very nerdy very aspergery very strict with standards and policies mm -hmm. if nazis were to take over the new york times and all other reliable sources say it once with like a lot of these chips yeah you need a lot of chips obviously wikipedia editors would have no choice but to turn wikipedia nazi that would happen and so not only would it become Nazi content, all content would become tilted toward the Nazis, mm -hmm. uh, sort of facts favorable to the allies would be obscured. Mm -hmm. uh, you might see in biographies of living persons, a note of Aryan descent and so forth. You know, Nazi ideas and ideologies would inevitably become embedded in the very structure of Wikipedia through this thing called reliability, and which is another word for prestige. Through this thing called reliability, which is another word for, for prestige. And so, this question of what what prestige means and where it comes from mm. is a very interesting question. You can short circuit that a little bit and not take this like deep dive into like outside the bubble, chaotic ideological outer space. Uh, I sh you should take the you should take the red pill, but you can take the blue pill, and and you know like you can actually you can go a long way with the blue pill. Like I, mm. I don't think Morpheus made a really strong case with the blue pill, right? With the blue pill, like you can really you can really do your best, and mm -hmm. and so like even within this world, you can say okay. I guess the reliable sources aren't very reliable. It's sort of like effective altruism where we're like, oh, there's a lot of people who claim to be philanthropists, but I guess they're not very effective. I don't know why, but like, they're not very effective. So let, let's do it again. Right. You know, and, and that's sort Your of the article on that of was effective altruism. Do you remember when you wrote, uh, you wrote a screed uh, it was on a couple of months ago? It was, Oh, okay. It was before before yeah, was... the fall before the fall of FDX. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. And and the do you, um, do you get and... a thrill off of seeing your kind of your your thought like manifest in the real world in these really big ways? No. That what would be the purpose of such a thrill? Like first of all, and secondly, like I don't think it's really manifested very much. Okay. Um, the 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 I mean, you know, I, it's certainly not manifested anywhere near as much as it should. But um, mm. the uh, you know I, I just have uh, because I'm outside I have outside the bubble standards for like what it means to manifest. Okay, I guess I would go. say okay. um, right. But but you know, could, um, but back to Twitter creating some sort yeah, of prestige right. network that would be based around individual content creators working in unison somehow. Somehow you want to basically against the sort of strange force of oligarchy and the reliable sources you need to synthesize the team of a team of central organization of monarchical organization with democratic volume and so twitter you know again democratic with a small t demotic like mass volume twitter has enormous scale the truth about anything can be found on Twitter, almost certainly. But assembling that truth, curating that truth in a way that is actually true, and not just truer than the New York Times, much truer than the New York Times. But and it, like, it still has know, to be sticky, too. 
You still what need you mean, like a, like like what you're saying about power and prestige. It, the story itself, the storyteller, or the storytelling has to gravitate or like yeah, be gravitational, be a force that people well, sure, want to but believe in, but the right? thing, yes, but people, do you know the the thing that uh, Henry Ford said, where he was like, you know, if people had asked me if I built what people wanted. I would have built a faster horse. Yeah. And and so, you know, the thing is you don't what people want think they want and what they actually want are perhaps slightly different things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's like a sort of there's there's a male way uh there there's a way when as someone once said, the public is a woman. And so sort of any conversation with the public is in a way a kind of seduction. And so you have to get the public who is a woman to follow you. But you do not necessarily do this by doing what the woman wants you to do or tells you she wants you to do. And the thing is that irrespective of how you present yourself, if you create a network of quality that is much higher than the existing network of quality sources and much more reliable, people will simply see that. And to the extent that people will that you're so your your quality is so much higher that people will simply see that you actually don't need to recruit. You don't need to go out and like start texting women like the size of your member you should just walk down the street knowing that you're well hung and, and like not even look at the ladies and mm -hmm. they will start following you as if you were the <laughs> okay. right and, well, and 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 so so describe so, this so ude the, quality the, then what, what 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 is quality what do you mean by quality quality, quality simply means being being right so i think of you know they say the news is the first draft of history and this is often uh, taken as an excuse for just lying basically they're like well it's just the first draft you know like like you know i'll we'll have a copy editor come and look at it later of course nobody comes and looks at it later yeah. right you know and 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 uh, the you know it's sort of when you basically say we are going to treat the story of the present as the highest quality of history then we need to subject it to the highest standards of history um uh, the couple of the summation or you know the summation of the standard of history by the inventor of modern history leopold von ranke who was not a nazi tank commander although he sounds like one he was a very respectable prussian uh, and leopold von ranke um described his standard of history as i'm going to butcher the german so i wouldn't even say it as it really was meaning that if you're describing history the history of anything it should feel to a person who is really there like the story of the things that really happened to them when mm -hmm. you set that against the um what was it, the michael Crichton line um the um god it was named after this like physicist the gelman effect where you basically like you read a story of, in the in the paper about something you know about and you're just like oh my god this is ridiculous and then you you read the rest of the stories in the paper which you don't know anything about and you believe them completely mm -hmm. right and so if the gelman effect is happening with like your reliable sources then there may be a problem with your reliable sources and and the hmm. so again like there's a sort of huge market space base 
to basically seize the high ground in the way that Adolf Ox did when he was founding the what the sort of the present dynasty of the New York Times and basically say, actually, we are going to produce and curate, which is intensely hard and people are intensely distrustful of. We are going to curate the highest quality information around. And and like, you know, that's like saying like you're competing with The New York Times at that point. You're saying, no, actually, this is all the news that's fit to print. And, you know, like you thought that this could only be done by weird secretive organizations based in New York City that were founded, you know, in the mm-hmm. 1840s. But mm-hmm. actually, we can do it, too. And we can do it better. And that's a very like to be able to say that in some way, to whatever extent that's, you know, whether that truth is 100 percent curated or we're 100 percent crowdsourced does not really matter. It's probably going to be it, to the best you could do with that will probably be some mix of those things. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that matters is, can you just be like palpably truer? And, and that, you know, that, that sort of quality like has a, a feeling all its own. It's like when you've never seen something above a certain quality bar, you you can't picture that there are things of a higher quality you know it's like i had this weird foreign brat upbringing and as a kid i came back to the states from nicosia cyprus and i was a 12 year old sophomore in a public high school in maryland and needless to say i had some trouble adapting and one of the things that i decided to do to adapt was to get a boom box and stop let's start listening to top 40 radio okay this was this was uh, 1986 and um, Bon Jovi was the thing, right? So, you know, I was listening. And Bon Jovi has some good tracks. And we're a Don, John Jovi fan, you know, Slippery When Wet. I'm a cowboy on a steel horse I ride. You know, I'm one in, dead or alive. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you can say things for John, bon, John Bon Jovi. He's still around today. But one day for like a contest or something, the station like Q105 or whatever played a Rolling Stones song. And I was like, okay. That's where rock and roll is. Mm. And, and you know, after that, like yeah, Bon Jovi yeah. could never be the same. And so, like, the thing is, you know, yeah. when you're hitting a, like a higher level than people expect, you're delivering a, a product that motherfuckers didn't even think could exist. Okay, this is like the way it is to do the public. And 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 it's but, also just a benefit to humanity because basically you're replacing lies with the truth. And mm-hmm. you know, the impact of that truth may be considerable, but like But with regard to what you're saying about the New York Times having insider it has and it can go into the state yeah. and reveal things that the state wants revealed but can't reveal itself and so the time like the you'd have to how would twitter replicate that insiderness with regard to the government or would it that's an excellent question well um it would have to recruit insiders and the insiders that it recruited would probably be motivated in different ways yeah. than the current insiders that the times recruits okay and so you know when you look at the um the golden age of espionage there was exactly there is an acronym for what are the ways in which we uh, obtain information from within a hostile organization and the acronym is mice Mm. and mice stands for money 
um, ideology, compromise, and ego. Mm. And so ego, you know, in the broadest sense, I mean, the systematization of the present source model is so extreme that it's almost like barely falls under espionage in any sense. Hmm. But, you know, the source here is clearly ego. So money compromise, meaning blackmail, um, ideology and ego. And so what you're looking at, if you're basically developing, you're looking at a different kind of ego. You basically, people who became sources in this sense would be motivated primarily by ideology and ego. And so, for example, the closest thing to this today, which has only been unleashed on the tech industry itself, there's an app called Blind, which basically allows Google employees to talk behind Google's back, hmm. knowing that they're talking only to other Google employees. That's basically, that's an infiltration tactic as, as like an intelligence maneuver. That's like, imagine all the communists in the State Department in 1942 had a signal oh, chat. Hey, which thank you for saying 1942, because I was just going to say, what's the difference between the two things at this point? <laughs> Yeah, the difference between now and 1942 <laughs> is that in 1942, there were non-communists in the State Department. <laughs> but um, the, um, the, I, I think there's still some, but that they're not organized, right? You know, they could be organized, and that would be a different and interesting thing. That would produce, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, that is sort of one source of like higher quality information than is currently made public today is that basically because the leaking sort of function has become very stylized mm. and very ideologically dominated and of course there's a huge quid pro quo because you're only telling you're telling journalists what they want to hear right and you know so much of this leak is you know like basically the journalists who like cover cia or cover the fbi are almost the next thing to cia or fbi staffers right you know so it's like if you think of the new york times as a government agency call it the ministry of information yeah. you realize that the ministry of information it makes perfect sense that moi staff would have access to all information within the system mm -hmm. and it makes perfect sense that the moi would be the strongest um, ministry in the government so basically you've taken this mm. important government function of controlling information which we in the anglo-american tradition mistakenly do not believe to be an important function of government hmm. and we've outsourced it we've hidden it we've outsourced it to a place where it can't be attacked we've sent it into networks which can't even be named or described which cannot be displaced in any sense and which seem to do a remarkably good job of incubating really bad ideas and making very bad ideas very prestigious mm -hmm. and basically this is why this whole system needs to be peacefully and non-violently burned down and or, or liquidated you can't erect an yeah, alternative liquidated. system well yeah on Twitter you, this way. of course yeah yes so in this like i'm of course talking about regime change in general mm. but you know of course elon musk cannot march arm the twitter engineers and march them to dc to take over the lower potomac watershed right you know i don't think uh you know any combination of drugs would make that seem like a good idea in the morning right and 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 so you know, you're you're limited to to, you know, 
on the contrary, when you're a dissident, you should practice the most rigid possible compliance. You should be a very, very good friend of law and order. And mm -hmm. and you should always comply with your enemy's demands at gunpoint. In fact, ideally, you should be so compliant that they never even point guns at you. And the like, that's mm -hmm. that's what you do when you're, you're playing for the long game. Right. And so it's perfectly legal for and like even meritorious for Twitter to create a, a some truth mechanism, which is truer than the New York Times. Mm -hmm. No one will perceive that as an attack. That's the opposite of like January 6th. No, you're actually just doing what the system in a way tells you to do. You're just creating this like hyper stimulus that's so strong that it actually starts directing the bees even though you're not actually really the queen bee hmm. and and because there is such a gap in quality of truth if you create your own bubble which is a bubble of actual truth within the bubble of lies that you know sits within the scary chaotic void of history then you actually there's nothing harmful or legal or you know about doing that like my god it's the american way right it's just that hmm. once people start thinking of the new york times as an old old-fashioned official truth and your thing as like the young up-and-coming cool thing that all the cool kids believe you've replicated the same dynamic that leads to the fall of the soviet union hmm. And it did not lead to the fall of the Soviet Union super quickly. But what happened was that the Soviet Union lost its young elites. It lost them to the West, it lost them to this alternative power, which itself we must concede was not entirely always up to good. Hmm. But it lost them to like blue jeans and like vinyl records, you know, printed on like X-rays and like stuff hmm. like that. It didn't lose them to like a, a tank assault across the folded gap. And, you know, so what you're actually doing when you, you know, have you heard the term soft power? Soft you, power. You've mentioned it several times throughout your writing, but why don't you define Soft it power, yes, on. it was defined by, I think, originally by a guy named Joseph Nye, who's a professor at Harvard, or, you know, some, some shithole like that. And he basically defined it as the way the empire works. You know, soft power is the power of prestige, of connections. It is the power that comes from being highly respected in an almost like, you know, strange formalized way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being highly respected in something that is not actually an open prestige network in any sense, but is a weird structural mm -hmm. back scratching mafia. Yeah. That's sort of the way the way that oligarchies work. It's the way that what George Soros calls calls civil society works. Mm. and you've heard the term civil society that's what it meant yeah right okay. and and so these these kinds of networks of prestigious people who know what is right and have sort of approved opinions and if those people still command the minds of the best and brightest young people they will rule forever when, when they lose that, when they lose that grip, when they lose their, you know, their sort of their own grip on the elites, what you get is, again, a dichotomy, you know, a sort of dynamic that's been a problem in Russia and many countries, hmm. you know, across the 20th century, which is that you get a separation between the regime and the elites. The best and the coolest people become anti-government. 
and you know the sort of the deeper and truer sense that that's in the more danger there is to the state and when you start developing like a killer elite by you know in russia in say 1900 like you know praising the czar and like polite intellectual society was like praising donald trump like everybody who was cool you know not only were they against the czar their parents had been against the czar probably the grandparents were against the czar right and you see the results they got they were not good right you know they really should have stuck with the czar you know but um Mm -hmm. they didn't stick with the czar and they got what they got you know and and fortunately my grandparents had kind of hightailed it over there before then i mean they were jews they were not involved but you know uh well they were stalinists actually but um well what if what if they were praising something not the czar that was better than what they eventually got wouldn't you well, want that you know if you want to overthrow were, a regime by capturing the cool kids then you want hopefully yeah. you want to give them something better to feel yeah cool you about. want to, you want them seem to think to give them something better to feel cool about and what the cool kids in russia in 1985 felt cool about is why can't we be like the west now, it would turn out that the West had its own problems, but, you know, in like East Berlin in 1985, why can't we be like the West is pretty compelling. And so there's nothing that cool kids right now can point at that's as simple to point at as why can't we be like X? Yeah. You know, and so in a way, sort of capturing that like the highest high ground because basically fashion always flows downward like people only admire people cooler than them that's like a definition of fashion right and so when you basically Hmm. find if you're looking to capture as much power as possible you want to go as high on that totem pole as possible and then you want things to flow downward from them you want that start with a cool this is why facebook took over the world it took over the world because it didn't start with a whole world it started at harvard moreover it started in the porcelain at harvard so it basically started in the you know everywhere it went after that it flowed downward and that's the easy, natural way to flow. MySpace could not flow upward to the bike room of the porcelain at Harvard. <laughs> not even the bike room, right? It could never even reach the bike room. And, and, and but what you're talking the, about now, this alternative, is not something that could take root in a Harvard bike room. Uh, no, no, no. It would have to... Well, it would take root as basically only in a dissident sense like yeah. trust me there you know there are plenty of dissidents inside these organizations they're not well organized they're not like you know but but like yeah like um hmm. like those kind of people who just sort of just can't stomach the diet of nonsense and lies that is like the daily fodder of existence within the regime like you know, like people just have no choice. They just can't swallow it anymore. They want to vomit it up. And, you know, to the extent that even, you know, that the talent and capacity and information of those people can be organized in some sense, I just don't think it's that hard to do that much better than the powers that be, just in terms of quality. And the thing is that in terms of like, how does this quality turn into concrete revenue? Couldn't really tell you, but like, I think it's worth the the long-term investment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the means, the means by which, uh, you know, saying that Twitter should become a truth machine is sort of like, you know, I, Elon has certainly said similar things. It's, yeah. it's sort of like believing that there should be self-driving cars. I also believe that there should be self-driving cars, 
I'm you think that my self-driving truth is what Elon's after? Like truth that it, makes yeah, itself. Yeah, I mean, well, it, the thing is, actually, I don't believe that self-driving truth is possible. I believe that actually truth, to the contrary, it needs to be driven. It's like you basically, you know, in a sense, when you're talking about a truth machine, you know, it's to say you're talking about journalism is the same as saying you're talking about religion you know they're the same things you know the purpose of religion is to lead the minds of the people this is religion in the not the hippy dippy sense but like real real religion right and you know it turns out that if you're a catholic you basically believe that one man should lead the mind of all of christendom that's how it is. That's what and then you get stuck it's with supposedly. Francis, and you're and like, "What the?" And then you get stuck with you know with a communist pope. But you know the the uh, yeah, you know it all it all it all went wrong when they uh, when you know when the John the conclave of John the twenty second or whatever, John the twenty third twenty third I think, uh, you know and and um, I think that was the first communist pope I believe. But but hmm. the um, we're getting to obscure you know the cardinal Siri hypothesis. These are very very obscure details. It's not a part of, of your red pill Catholic, moment. Catholic is, doctrine. Oh. Yeah, no, 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 no. This is very different dark stuff, folks. Different don't don't get okay. into this like set of <laughs> set of Adventist material. But the um, uh, that's from Sedeva Conte, meaning the throne is vacant. But you know, you see that some Catholics have an answer for even your very astute question here. But um, the yeah, so you know, my belief, which is probably different from Elon's, because I just don't know if he's as much of a monarchist as I am, even though he's a a working king and i yeah he's a practicing not. monarch he's, so. he's a practicing monarch but the thing is many monarchs have practiced without really a full ideology of monarchism and i think that's a mistake frankly i think that basically when you try to do monarchy without being a monarchist especially when you try to do 100 percent monarchy without being 100 percent monarchist you make mistakes like you know um keeping the former general counsel of the FBI on your staff, right? Yeah, okay. I mean, like, this is a howler, man, you know, and and it's a howler. And and so, so you know, so to, the, to me, the word that indicates... defines monarchy is absolute. Absolute. Power. Yeah, right, right, right. To the extent that monarchy is not absolute, it's not monarchy. And, and so the sense of, like, basically, you know, it appears basically Jack Dorsey, like many kings, was ready to cede this sort of very important piece of power that affected not just Twitter, but the outside world to this like little, you know, um, um, cabal of, um, yeah. you know, uh, like grinder researchers, I guess. Right. But, you know, <laughs> the, the 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 former head of trust and safety literally wrote his Ph.D. on under underage access to grinder. <laughs> and the I mean, it's a subject that we can debate. Right. You know. A febophilia versus pedophilia. We, yeah, we could right. be here all day, right? We could invite Milo Yiannopoulos on to, to talk with us, but like it's just not it's not necessarily the like territory that I want to think of in terms of like trust and safety. It's like, you know, if Elon were to hire like, you know, Richard Spencer as the head of trust and safety, he yeah. would be like, Well, they put in Nazis. It's like he's a former Nazi, he's a reform, he's no longer a Nazi. Yeah. He's actually he's he's very woke on the Ukraine question, you know. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, it would be it's just like i don't think he'd frankly go there i mean, he has a phd in history you know <laughs> <laughs> i just i don't understand why they would go looking guy over that in in the, that no, key of a position because, it's just so weird that this you're just that, that's not how it's thinking in those terms you're not thinking in those terms at all of ethics and morality like, and no, what's no, good and no, bad no and no my god child like safety? judging a person for that reason no oh, okay. it was just like it's not consistent with like 
prestige thinking. The idea, for example, that you would cancel someone at like a prestigious institution of learning for, um, you know, having, having, um, um, having uh, certain sexual predilections. But yeah, other right, ones are right. off, like heterosexual predilections that that are randy. Yeah, well, they'll get you canceled. Yeah, but that's that's I mean, that's that's the, the you know, patriarchal sexual you know protections. That's okay. like full on full on Handmaid's Tale stuff. No, we wouldn't want any of that. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, it's like when you inhabit this world, it's like inhabiting any world. It's like being a Mormon. Right. You know, if you're just a Mormon and you grew up among Mormons, are you a Mormon by any chance? No, you're kind no. of a Mormon face. You Do have I? a bit of Mormon face. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, and 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 you know you know what I mean by Mormon face. It's not gay face, but it's like you know, <laughs> like the like third cousin of gay face, right? You know what I'm talking about. You know, imagine yourself with a little nameplate. You know, this is Elder Boys. You know, and 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 uh, I've never um, been that strongly backhanded in my own interview before. Thank sorry. you. It was an honor. It was a great it's, honor. It's a compliment. I love Mormons. They're the best people in the world. Very moral. But you know, but the thing is, if you if you're like brought up a Mormon, like believing like in like the story of the golden plates or whatever, yeah, right. And you know, maybe you're like out there looking for the golden plates with like metal detectives or something. You know, and uh, the people do that i don't but i but, don't but think the, yeah, they're corporal anymore don't they really oh, okay translate yeah, into some sort of bond mormon, or something like that they're off they, the gold standard now be. those mormons yeah exactly exactly yeah. exactly maybe you were a mormon but you know in any case basically you're, you're brought up within this weird science fiction novel that joseph smith wrote in the 1840s or whatever yeah. and you know like brilliant work i don't know that's like bible tier but like you know <laughs> and, and and you just like you feel that as normal and that's sort of what it's like to grow up in the, the like progressive world, the like 20th to 20th century, 21st century progressive bubble, which is basically like the blue state world that I grew up with. Yeah. That I grew up in. I mean, okay. you asked me what I have against the libs. Like these are my people, man, you know? And so, you know, actually to like sort of take the journey of like stepping outside the society to even understand like mormonism is just like one among many possible religions equivalent to like zoroastrianism or hinduism mm -hmm. is just like a huge mental frame breaking step yeah and yeah. you know it's like dmt tier and what about the the cultural critique you don't concentrate on this too much because you're you're talking about process you're talking about power you're talking about these structures but why are they the way they are why is this marxist oppression theory kind of this uh, the, because you know, because fighting this is, the man kind of morality this is the this is a core you know this is a, a you know a topic that i've really struggled to articulate in a way that is really comprehensible in mass. Hmm. It's because, you know, the term marketplace of ideas. Yeah. So when we think of a marketplace of ideas, we think of an evolutionary process in which successful ideas achieve market, market success and are rewarded by like successful reproduction. They go into textbooks. People realized, for example, in the early 1960s that plate tectonics was true. For most of the first half of twenty the twentieth century, plate tectonics are like, oh, wow, it looks like a South Africa kind of fits the coast of, you know, 
you know, uh, South America or Africa, like, wow, gee, a four year old could notice that like, you know, it's like retarded for like thinking that that's like a real thing. (laughs) Right. And then in the early 60s, people are like, no, that actually happened. Right. And that's the way science is supposed to work. Basically, a better theory of how the continents got where they are basically replaced the old theory, causing the old theory to, in fact, be you scene which had previously been a main theory it now becomes literally like crack pottery it becomes like forgotten i don't even know the counter yeah yeah, yeah. origini right you know that yeah sure but if you pick up like a geology book from the 1950s it will explain how mountains are formed and its explanation of how mountains are formed has nothing to do with reality it's crackpot science right and the i mean those effects may exist like marginally but plate tectonics are the real reason that mountains are formed yeah and so you have this thing that it is the way the marketplace of ideas is supposed to work in which good ideas beat up bad ideas. And this is all well and good. Yeah. And but good and bad pro- don't have to do with true. Yeah, right. Alone. Successful and unsuccessful. The problem is that somebody noticed that this this marketplace of ideas worked so well that they should hook it up to power. Oh, and they should actually put it in charge. The problem is once they did this, the criteria for success in the marketplace of ideas changed. And instead of power going solely down from the marketplace of ideas into the organs of execution, power came back up the pipe and contaminated the marketplace of ideas. There was no way to put a valve on it. And because there was no way to put a valve on it, suddenly what started to happen is that ideas that felt powerful, that felt relevant, that made an impact, started to gain a Darwinian advantage in the marketplace of ideas. And when you look at sort of what constitutes a progressive idea, you know, it's very strange. Sometimes they're like very for nationalism, you know, you know. Sometimes they're for blood and soil. Sometimes they're against blood and soil. They did this weird turnaround with like the Ukrainian Nazis, which is like funny as all get out, right? It was almost as funny as like the COVID mask turnaround. Like, why do these turnarounds happen? And these turnarounds happen because of underlying shifts in the adaptive landscape of ideas. (laughs) And so essentially blood and soil nationalism, when it comes from some ancient uh, you know, First Nations tribe that collected shells on, you know, the borders of San Francisco Bay, that's empowering. You can really, you know, empathize with these people. You know, Israeli nationalism, much more questionable. German nationalism, definitely not. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, like, when you look at why some of these blood and soil things, you know, like, what are you saying when you talk about, you know, we're on... Occupied, yeah. you know, tick attack land, you know, as yeah. I like to say here in California, I'm an op- occupied Habsburg land. <laughs> and the, the um, and true that, right? <laughs> and and actually the true name of the country that I'm in at the moment. New Spain. New Spain? Oh yeah. Nueva España. Nueva España. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. New Spain. 
Right. So I'm sitting here in occupied New Spain, you know, and and uh, liberal occupied New Spain, and, <laughs> and, and, and the um um you know, in case you didn't think the Mexican War was legit, right? You know, and and if you're saying no, this isn't New Spain, you're like the Mexican War was, you know, and and um yeah, the then you also have to you know if you defend the Monroe Doctrine. And the Mexican War, then you can say no, this isn't New Spain. But like, if you're really going to defend both of those things, the Monroe Doctrine, because the Monroe Doctrine is, of course, what prevents Spain from restoring order after the revolution in Mexico, which was caused by the Napoleonic Wars. And so, basically, after the Napoleonic Wars, England, using the U.S. as a satellite country, said to the Habsburgs of the Holy Alliance. Oh, hey, you don't get your colonies back. That's what the Monroe Doctrine meant. And so that's what turned Nueva España, which was actually one of the most conservative parts of the Spanish Empire, into the country now known as Mexico. Of course, having been to Mexico, I must concede that it was a vast improvement, much more modern and clean. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but, um, actually, everything that, Mex in, that works in Mexico was basically created either on when it was in Nueva España or under the evil dictator Porfirio Diaz. Um, NAFTA? It, You're not going to include NAFTA in that? No. Yeah, we'll, we'll give NAFTA some credit. But really, <laughs> okay. the Porfiriato was, was, was the high point after after the fall of New Spain, but, but the fall of New Spain was a tragedy. But in any case, basically all, all going, these, you're, going You're describing power, this, but, but progressive power has a certain sort. It, it honors certain powers a, and not other powers. It, it basically, it's progressive power has a fund, is an attraction to power, which is fundamentally chaotic in nature. It likes to basically think about, for a more modern example than supporting the Mexican Revolution, think about the ways in which people support the Arab Spring or even support the war in the Ukraine. Nice work on both of those. You've gotten a lot of people killed, American TV audience. And what you always find is you're like, they're like, yeah, but we got them killed sticking up for the underdog. Yeah. You know, history is a Marvel movie. Like, you know, I will stand for like, you know, we are the good guys in the Marvel movie. And I'm like, well, you got a quarter of a million people here killed here, 500 million there, yeah. you know, but they're like, but where are the good guys in the Marvel movie? It's like a scene from Idiocracy, right? You know, and if you look at what people are supporting and why they're supporting it, they're supporting an underdog against an overdog. Over and in over fact, and over again. Without that, their, that's the key. Over and over again. And without their support, the underdog would, not only would the underdog have no chance, the conflict would never even exist. So they go through, in some places, they've gone through this pattern of supporting an underdog, chaos revolution, the underdog emerges on top, you know, starts to restore order, new underdog, <laughs> right? And so yeah. you just have these, these cycles of chaos and revolution over and over again, which appear like beautiful and romantic to Americans. And this is not a 20th century thing. Americans did this over the, the revolutions of 1848, they did this in the Russian Revolution, the Mexican Revolution. You know, there's this guy, you know, John Reed, who Warren Beatty portrayed in Reds, film very worth seeing. He's sort of the typhoid Mary of early 20th century revolution because he basically, <laughs> after helping to burn Mexico down, he goes to Russia and helps burn Russia down. Very dashing, romantic young man. Oh, wow. Would fit okay. in today perfectly at any party in Greenwich Village. And so the, what's the origin of the underdog myth then? This sounds like a, like an archetypal the, form. It's like an archetype. Yeah. 
Exactly. It's, it's, it's an archetypal form where basically two things are happening. One is you, by supporting the underdog, the underdog is becoming a tool in your mind of you. You are taking possession of this person by taking his side. You are becoming, in a sense, a kind of lord over him. Yeah, yeah. And so he becomes dependent on you yeah. for the like rebellious fire that, you know, he's like, you know, Nelson Mandela, right? You know, when you support Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela becomes part of your right arm. Yeah. Well, cool. or the, the, a lot yeah. of the support of the 2020 Black Lives Matter from the white part of America was, was this really twisted kind of ownership of the black struggle yeah. and, and this yeah. Yeah. authentication yeah. of their own morality through uh, yeah. the burning yeah. cities yeah. and the yeah. decimation of black One sec, property. I got to send yeah. the text. All right. Um, I got to get off the phone in about 10 minutes, too. Okay. It's a short one. Yeah, it's always short for you. How do we land this plane? Oh, this has then? been fun. This, how do we land this plane then? So, okay, so how do we land this plane? Okay, then? okay, I got, I got it. So, how would, how would, how would Elon uh, insulate Truth Machine from power? How would you remove power from the uh, truth making? Well, process? see, that's actually that's actually very easy because you're so outside power. You're in a situation where, by definition, you're starting it without any influence. And so if you can rid yourself hmm. of this sort of feeling kind of reactive sense, actually, the, the greatest danger for basically dissident sources of information is not to react against power, to just like sort of ignore it in a way. So hmm. imagine you're a historian writing a history of the Wars of the Roses. Okay, are you going to be a like Lancastrian history historian? You know, if you're a Marxist historian writing about the Russian Revolution, like that's a take. But are there any Yorkist professors at like you know University College London? How about Lancastrians? You know, all of Yale University is like a nest of Lancastrians. I don't think so. And so you know, when you go back that hmm. far, yeah, you're sort of you're able to achieve like historical detachment trivial. Yeah advance a little bit forward only like a century and a half to the English Civil War. Yeah. They're already you're taking political sides. And one of the so so when you're looking to have a more Olympian perspective it's the Olympian perspective, not the oppositional perspective that you're looking for. The perspective of like, I'm going to like complain about this or that. Yeah. That's bad karma. What you're looking for, if you're actually looking to create what the Chinese call the mandate of heaven, hmm. uh, it's a quality. The Arabic word for this quality is baraka. You're trying to create kind of a gravitas like a dignity a, like a, a sense of like you know which is a sense that again you see that sense cultivated very much in the new york times you know this is why they're like their fact checking processes of atrophied in some ways but you know i was the subject like earlier this year i was the subject of like a, a story in a Conde Nast magazine right and i will tell you like the work the fact checkers did there was absolutely excellent 
And, and, you know, um, I mean, the story was going to describe my girlfriend as a dominatrix, right? And um, um, <laughs> the, my fiance, uh, you know, my now ex-fiance, sadly, uh, you know, but, um, you know, they they were just and, and she was the, the fact checker was talking to my ex and she was like, I could feel that something was not quite right about that description. And 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 so, you know, the thing is, it's easy to mock these systems for their structural failures. Actually, like there's a lot of greatness inside them. There's a lot of things to be learned from these machines themselves. And so, the so this Olympian kind of perspective a, isn't a, a view from nowhere. It's a view from somewhere. It's, it's a view. Well, it's kind of a view from nowhere in that it's like it's I think it's more of a view from nowhere. But that view from nowhere is also a view from everywhere. And so if there's a perspective that that is not within the Olympian perspective, the Olympian perspective is not sufficiently Olympian. Hmm. It should be a no brainer that everything the libs are right about. Is generally by accident is included but the thing is actually if you're looking at the marketplace of an ideas an idea which is both useful and right is going to do real both powerful and right is going to do really really well such ideas exist mm -hmm. should our enemies have a monopoly on them mm -hmm. no should mm -hmm. we be forced to be wrong when we encounter an idea of that class absolutely not and so mm -hmm. the 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 sense of like capturing the high ground includes capturing that quality of a high ground and saying, oh, this is one of your favorite pet ideas. This idea is fine and good. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. We love it. Mm -hmm. We're all agreed. And, and, you know, you don't want to be, you know, they have every capacity of noticing that two plus two is four. You don't want to be trapped into thinking that two plus two is five. That is a very, very, very common mistake that comes out of an oppositional complaining narrative okay. that is not trying to go around and get above. So don't be the underdog. Powers that be. Don't, yeah, the, don't the whipping sort boy, of, I guess. Don't don't adopt that kind of mentality, first of all, because the only reason that underdogs win is that there's an even bigger overdog somewhere in the picture. You don't have that because you don't have that. Don't play that game. You're just playing a stupid game and all the prizes are stupid. Hmm. And, you know, because really those underdogs that like succeeded, you know, it's like Libya, for example, reminds me of the unification of Italy by Garibaldi. If you've ever been to Italy, you might have heard the joke that actually he divided Africa. And hmm. um, if you've been to southern Italy in specific, and um, that, I'm not sure if Italians tell that joke, but they certainly once did. In any case, Garibaldi, with his like 300 red shirts bent on blood and soil, uh, overthrows the Bourbons in Italy. How does he do this? Well, it's not just Garibaldi with 300 guys. It's also the British Navy. Mm. patrolling offshore right yeah. you know and okay. and this is very much like the libyan experience it wasn't the libyan rebellion that overthrew Gaddafi. it was a bunch of libyan militias plus the nato air force right 
and and so you know to say that it was like a libyan revolution rather than a nato conquest with the aid of some local traders is is like a hard the, definition no... if you don't have the nato air force yeah don't do it but Poland, if your enemy really... has the the nato like if, if the cathedral has everything yeah. and you're trying to create something that's not don't be an underdog don't don't, be, don't, don't even don't go for the underdog mentality everything about the underdog mentality is meretricious and will lead you only to disaster simply just create greatness as if your enemies did not exist at all and <laughs> they will not dare to even approach you yeah speaking of creating greatness good... uh right, plug your sub stack and then you can uh head off all to your right. dinner plans i hope it's um, a fancy feast my name is curtis yarvin and you can find my Substack at graymirror.substack.com. That's gray with an A, the American way. Why gray? Thank you so much. Is this about gray journalism? Why gray? Just... Why gray? That's a good question. Yeah, it's that's an excellent point. It's like gray has a sort of almost an officious quality. You know, I once some, said someone to someone who was who was founding, uh, you know, a, trying to thinking of founding a media company. I was like. The purpose of your media company should become be to become the state media organ of the next regime. <laughs> and that's of course not my ambition. That's just a sub. Oh yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. But but <laughs> we'll see. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank Curtis. you so much. Have a good thank, night. Thank you so much. Great call. Take care. Bye. Bye.